Let me read our text for this morning from Exodus 12, 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb from each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. And the lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. You have heard the ancient story. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. That's the message God continually tries to reveal to Israel. And it's the message they most often forget or fail to understand in the first place. Now, I understand their hesitation. In today's text, their entire community is enslaved to a wicked and greedy empire. I would wonder whether the world is God's. I would wonder whether God even is. And I'm not sure that God's message or human experience is all that different in 2023 from the stories of the First Testament in Exodus. The world belongs to God, but goodness, love, kindness, and wisdom are absent from many places. Nations go without bread. There are as many slaves in the world today as there ever have been. There are parents the world over who do not recognize the divine image in their child. People call the truth a lie and lies truth, and everyone's fingers are pointed everywhere else, and everyone's being genuine. The good gift of creation has been renamed natural resource, and it's mistreated as a result. People love things and use, pe use people when they should love people and use things. So how do we turn to God in a world that's like that? 
How do we trust when our faith is not sight, when it's not sensible? The earth belongs to you? Really? That's the cry that goes up from Israel in Exodus 2, 23. That's my paraphrase. They were enslaved and forced into hard labor, stomped down again and again and again as their numbers grew. And it went from oppression to murder when Pharaoh had the Hebrew boys killed. Remember Russ talked about our heroines, Puah and Shifra, who decided to trust God instead of fearing empire. And then Moses is born, and he's rescued by his sister, and God calls Moses through a bush, a fire, but not consumed. And God said, your stutter is no problem, nor your past. The I am is with you. And then he returned to Egypt, and he performed signs and wonders, and he called for freedom and spoke in courage. And the cry of the Hebrew people that went up at the beginning of Exodus has been heard. And now, in the great story of the Exodus, in the great story of liberation and freedom, as the people move towards a promised land, we pause. On the threshold of a new beginning, we pause. In the middle of one of the most incredible stories ever told, we pause. Why? For dinner instructions and wardrobe recommendations. How strange is this? In the drama of good and evil, of truth and falsehood, of slavery and freedom, of God and empire, in the middle of this drama, we pause and we get a supper. We get a symbol. We get a sacramental practice. Sacraments are the practices that help us embody the truth about God. The thing is, God is in the world. God is at work within the world. The world does belong to God. We cannot simply trust this blindly, though. Our faith needs to become sight. It needs to become sensible. God works in the world using the things of the world. Indeed, God weds God's self to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. So we take the Lord's Supper and we pray together and we use our bodies in singing our hymns and even maybe preach our sermons and teach our lessons because God is working in all of these things. Love and light are breaking forth in the world. Now let me pause because this is beginning to sound a little romantic. The ritual of Passover is not one that I can sterilize of its violence. To our modern sensibilities and living the privileged lives that many of us live, that I certainly live, some of this story is entirely offensive and shocking. To many in our world, though, it's not so foreign. The violence of empire results in violence. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the cruelty of a parent towards another person can corrupt a child or that inhumanity kills humanity. There's more to unpack, but I just want to keep from sidestepping that tough part of the story. Empire, rejecting God as God, attempting to possess and control the earth and the people in it, that results in violence. 
In the life of Jesus, we realize that God is a being willing to die rather than kill, to give of God's own life rather than take another's life. But even though Christ's light illuminates this passage for us, I think we can take it and appreciate it on its own terms. Passover was remembered and practiced because it was real for the people experiencing the violence of empire in Egypt. This is Passover, when the Hebrew people are protected and an empire reaps what it's been sowing for generations. This is Passover, it's liberation, it's freedom. And in 1238, we even see that many others, many Egyptians flee with the Israelites to leave the land of empire. This supper, this ritual, this sacramental practice helped the Israelites believe that God was with them, that God is actually working, that the, the earth and the abundance thereof really is the Lord's. One of my favorite authors is Wendell Berry. And those of you who know me well are rolling your eyes because that's so predictable, but he's amazing. He transcends John. I don't even know how to talk about him. He's the best thing. Wendell Berry will say, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Sacramental practices are essential for our life together because while the world belongs to God, empire exists too. Desecrated landscapes and communities and families and relationships and personalities exist. To see God in our midst and to become sacramental people, we need divine embodiment and holy immediacy. As a former mentor would say, we need Jesus with skin on. A jarring phrase, <laughs> but a helpful one. We need sacramental practices. We need faith made sensible. Perhaps the waters of baptism help us see that God is continually cleansing and refreshing us and that rain should be purifying and rivers should run clean. Perhaps the message of a sermon helps us hear that all speech is either sacred and life-giving or desecrated and harmful. Perhaps our silence helps us hear God speak. Perhaps communities and committees and leadership teams and, and councils help us know that we have a voice and are an important part of God's mission in the world and in our church. Perhaps connection groups help us feel the community of God. Perhaps our anthems help us proclaim with our very bodies that all music and skill and art is animated with a beauty beyond itself. Perhaps the Lord's Supper helps us taste and see that every meal is sacred, that every table needs to be open, that the Lord is indeed good. And then, guess what? When we're people of sacramental practices, when we share in sacred spaces, we become sacramental. Like Moses, 
who encountered a bush of fire with the presence of God and then went to face empire with courage and conviction. We can go into desecrated places and bring the sacred. We can go into the world empowered by the Spirit of God as a living song, an enacted sermon, an embodied baptism, a true community living bread for the world, Jesus, with skin on him. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Hear these words attributed to Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, Let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. You have heard the ancient story. If another member of the church sins against you, if a brother or sister in the church hurts you, angers you, upsets you, makes you sad, or does you wrong in any way, the first thing you should do is quickly contact your mutual friends and tell them your side of the story. (laughs) Convince them that you are in the right and get them on your side. If another member of the church sins against you, you might want to fire off an email or a text because going back and forth that way can never be misunderstood, can it? Oh, and while you're at it, why not copy Russ or Amy so that you can get them on your side too? If another member of the church hurts you or angers you, one alternative is just avoid them. Unfriend them on Facebook and block them on your phone. And if running into them at church gets too uncomfortable and a little too awkward, well, just leave the church. No one tell Russ or Amy I said that, even as a joke. 
No, fortunately, this is not the prescription for handling conflict that Jesus laid out in Matthew's gospel. He says, first, go to the person who offended you and try, try to reconcile with one another. Talk the problem out face to face before involving anyone else in the dispute. If the person doesn't listen to you, then bring one or two others along as witnesses and try again to reconcile. Bringing one or two others is not an attempt to shame the person into admitting they were wrong. It's an attempt to involve a neutral, objective person so that the conversation can move toward reconciliation. Sort of like the role of a marriage counselor or a mediator in a divorce proceeding. If that fails, then as a last resort, bring the matter before the church. And if the person refuses to listen even to the church, then he should be considered as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, an outsider who is no longer welcome. At this point, I think it's fair to acknowledge that there are some serious difficulties with this passage. Several commentators call it the most difficult passage in Matthew's entire gospel. In its present form, one must admit, it just doesn't really sound like Jesus. It sounds more like regulations put together by an early church committee on how to deal with conflict. In the passage, Jesus tells his disciples to take matters to the church. But the church, the called out assembly of believers, had not yet even come into existence. Also, the passage implies that there is a limit to forgiveness, that at some point, the offender, if he cannot acknowledge his guilt, should be treated as an outsider. This certainly does not sound like something that Jesus would say, not the Jesus who says in just a few short verses later in the very same chapter that we should forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, without limit. And finally, the passage seems to give the church the power to retain or forgive sins, not just in the present, but for eternity. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I like you all, but the power to bind and loose my sins is a little more power than I want to give to you. So if Jesus didn't exactly say these words, and if they are in fact a later adaptation made by the early church as a recipe for dealing with conflict, what are we to make of this passage. 
what did Jesus say on this subject that led to this text as we have it? Well, Jesus' followers certainly had ample opportunity to see how he related to people, always with compassion, always with understanding, always with a view to their redemption. And he certainly did not exclude Gentiles and tax gatherers. In fact, he included a tax gatherer among his disciples, and in more than one case, he included Gentiles in his healing ministry. I outlined for you in my introduction how lots of people out there deal with conflict. Badmouth your adversary to all your friends, fire off a few angry texts and emails, ignore them, and eventually unfriend them and block them on your phone. This list of steps was easy for me to compile because I saw it happen so many times when I worked with university students. Exactly these things would happen. When they would come to me about a conflict they were having with someone, my first question was always the same. Have you gone to this person, sat down with them, and talked to them about this situation? And the answer was almost always, no, I haven't. I would advise them to go and do that. And if they couldn't resolve the issue between the two of them, they could come back to me together and talk about it. They almost never came back to talk about it. Friends, as the body of Christ, the people of God, we are called to handle things differently than they are handled outside the church. That is not to say that as individuals we are any better or any worse than anyone else. We all have faults and foibles and shortcomings, people both inside and outside the church. And yes, differences and conflicts occur among us church folks too. I'm guessing that you were already aware of this. But we are called to handle things differently. As Christians, we believe in reconciliation, restoring broken relationships and making them right again. We believe that Christ is reconciling the whole world and each of us in it to God and also to one another. So when two Christians take their conflict as an opportunity to practice reconciliation, what they do is a visible sign to the whole world of what we believe Christ is doing in the world, an outward and visible sign of the reconciliation that we believe is happening in a deeper and more mysterious way in the world. Thus, when conflict in the church is treated as an opportunity to practice reconciliation, it becomes something sacred, something holy. 
something sacramental. St. Benedict, who lived at the beginning of the sixth century and became the father of Western monasticism with the founding of the Benedictines, demonstrated tremendous wisdom when it came to living in community. In his rule for the Benedictines, one of the pillars centered on how to live a Christocentric life in community. He referred to community as a school for souls in which we learn not just how to live, but how to love one another. Benedict said that we can best understand how love, how God loves and forgives us by extending love and forgiveness to others. One of the things Dan Davis talked about this past weekend on our retreat was the discipline of being truly present in the place where you find yourself, being truly present where you are. That means being truly present even with the people that you find to be the most difficult for you. Can you stay present with them? Stay focused on them. Love them the way that God loves you. If so, maybe people will think you mean what you say when you talk about the church being entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. The passage leaves us with the promise that where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he is there among us. Whether those two are in conflict with one another and seeking to reconcile, or if it's just you and someone you have trouble getting along with, Christ is present with you and his presence can make all the difference. Conflict is never easy. Be loving, be compassionate, show understanding, offer forgiveness. Make conflict an opportunity to practice reconciliation. Make it something sacred and holy and sacramental. On Friday, I was standing on the steps of their house talking to the Perez family when I saw Will, their neighbor, coming across the street with his hands kept like this. He knelt down in front of Charlotte, their four-year-old daughter, and told her to hold out her hands. He very gently placed a beautiful butterfly in the palm of Charlotte's hand, and it rested there a moment before fluttering away. I wish all of you could have seen the expression of wonder and amazement on her little face. The sacred is everywhere, all around us. All we have to do is hold out our hands and open our hearts so that we can see it. It can even be found in unlikely places like in the way that we handle conflict with one another. May it be so.